With the inception and traction that blockchain and crypto has gathered, the world is possibly on the verge of the largest evolution since the mainstream of the internet. Given the fluidity and dynamic nature of this technology, business leaders, enthusiasts, and veterans all need to band together to navigate the current and upcoming storms. Participants in Web 3.0 want a trusted resource that gives them pertinent information about projects, tokens, technology, and businesses. We are business people talking the business of crypto. We are Y Whales. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Y Whales. My name is Siva Varu, Managing Director of Y Whales Solutions, and I'm joined by my good friend and board member, Sue Marks. Today, we have a great guest uh, from Jiram Law, Vivek Jiram. Um, excited to d dive into technology and implications from a legal perspective and you know, how the, the legal environment is trying to keep pace with this rapid you know, innovation cycles right now that we've seen post-COVID especially. Um, Vivek, what, 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 is, what is some of the biggest topics right now that you're being considered from clients that are coming to you, you know, especially around when we think about AI and ChatGPT and these large language models? Yeah, uh, well, nice to see you, Shiva and uh, Sue. Great to be here with you today. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I wish I had a really clever, unique, original answer uh, for, for, for this question. But um, if I'm being completely honest here, I mean, over the last, I would say, really eight to 12 months, um, we have been increasingly inundated with questions around AI. Um, you know, uh, and I think what started is just sort of some you know, drips here and there, little questions on the fringe of, 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 you know, businesses and maybe some interesting startup ideas have very quickly transformed into large digital transformation type of projects for some of the world's largest companies. Um, so, you know, I've been practicing uh, law about 20 years been alive for 44 and I feel like I've never seen a 12 month period um, where uh, a specific technology has um, sort of propelled itself to the forefront of, um, you know, both the business and sort of cultural communities uh, globally so quickly. So I'm excited to talk about that today. Awesome. Yeah, Vivek, yeah, I mean, when, when we were talking earlier, Vivek, when we were talking earlier, you, you mentioned, kind of in, uh, you know, from late 2021, early 22, lots of startups, et cetera. And that kind of hype cycle, now the big brands are coming in and take, take they're taking over. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I'll, you know, I'll give you just a little bit of like, one of my most favorite things about um, I guess we're, if we're calling it Web3 or like blockchain or AI, you know, I would put all these things in the bucket of like just new and emerging technologies, right? And I think one of the most interesting things about Web3 for me um, is that, you know, it's so new and it's so early that it's interesting to look at everybody's sort of entry point to it, uh, right? And so I'll, I'll just tell you for a minute how I kind of got into it and then I'll talk a little bit about the last couple of years, you know, so... Um, I spent the first five years of my career working in, in big law, um, doing a lot of corporate and IP work, you know, good place to get trained, made some good friends, but ultimately was not something that I wanted to sort of um, go down the partner path and stay with, you know, for decades. And so I started this firm back in 09, really with a singular idea to have a law firm that is built from day one 
for creatives, entrepreneurs, and creative brands. And so from the very beginning, um, we had this real focus on uh, new technologies, emerging technologies, and we were focused really on three kind of industries, which are fashion, art, and tech, and tech, right? And tech is such a weird thing to think of as an industry now because everything is tech-enabled, and if you're not tech-enabled, you're probably falling behind. But at the time, it really was sort of a growing industry of creatives who were making things with software, right? And as, you know, say 15, 16 years ago. And so it was, um, I think for the first 10 years or so, I had these fashion and art clients kind of on the one hand, and then I had these tech founders on the other hand, and they were just kind of growing and bubbling up sort of in unison, but also kind of in parallel. And then in 2019, towards the end of the year, um, I'll never forget it. I had a, uh, an artist client of mine uh, text me some artwork he was working on. And I said, oh, cool, digital art. And he said, yeah. He goes, they're calling these NFTs. And I had never heard that term before. <laughs> I mean, I was familiar with blockchain technology. We had done some ICO work, although not a ton, but back in 16, 17. So I, I was familiar with cryptocurrencies generally and, and blockchain, but I had never heard this term, uh, NFT. So I remember Googling it and, you know, it was buried somewhere, third, fourth page, something like that. I read a little bit about it. And then lo and behold, a few months later, um, I was approached by uh, another client of mine who had a brick and mortar art gallery up in Palm Beach. Um, and she told me she was going to be shuttering the gallery in favor of working with one specific artist to create uh, an NFT project. Um, I was surprised. She had a relatively thriving gallery that had been, um, you know, over on Worth Avenue for uh, a while. And, um, but, you know, I thought it was interesting. So we were helping her build the project, you know, with all the contracts and the privacy policies, terms of use. And back then there were really not many um, best practices for NFTs. And we were just kind of doing it the way we thought was like the best way to do it. And, uh, and lo and behold, you know, that project dropped early in the pandemic and it was called the Boonji Project, which some of you may have heard of. And at the time that that dropped, it was the, uh, you know, most valuable, highest selling NFT project uh, in history at that time. And so that kind of catapulted, you know, myself and the firm into this NFT world. And sure, I've been working for decades in the, with contemporary artists and in fashion and with tech founders, but this specific on-chain kind of um, space where people were creating digital art, which sort of has now morphed into a little bit of generative AI and things like that, um, was really interesting. And artists gravitated to it because it allowed them to um, collect resale royalties for the first time uh, ever, even though, you know, people have been advocating to the NEA and others on, on Capitol Hill for decades to get something like that um, so that creators can earn money on the resale of their artworks. And also it helped curb um, uh, helped curb uh, uh, counterfeiting because uh, if all the transactions are taking place on chain, so to speak, on the blockchain, um, we can verify the authenticity of these works, right? So it was something that was very appealing, this technology to creative people, right? And so in 2020 and 21, as, as Sue, you mentioned a minute ago, and I would say even the first half of 22, we saw an explosion of these kinds of NFT projects. I mean, if I'm being, you know, if I'm really, I don't have a, a number in front of me, but it felt like every day and certainly every week we were launching a new project, you know, and uh, it was very exciting. You know, it was great to see this sort of um, real potpourri of creativity and like people really um, experimenting in, in very interesting ways. Most of those projects failed, right? They did. But um, I still think, 
every single one of them added to the sort of fabric of what is going on in blockchain today um, because it, you know, it, it, it showed us, you know, a little bit of what might work. It showed us a little bit of what might not work. And so collectively, I think that the community moved forward. Um, you know, a lot of that VC funding, so, you know, dried up last year and everybody knows that. And um, that is also quite typical in, in these venture markets and in these cycles, right? But I think to your point, what has been really interesting and something that I did not expect, at least personally, was that over the last year, really around the time that I would say a lot of these venture markets sort of, um, you know, went a little bit cold, we saw a lot of a number of large public companies and brands really um, start to um, experiment and implement and execute really interesting projects on chain um, for their audiences and consumers, right? And so I think there was really two phases of that I've seen in the last year. I think phase one was, I would say, Qs three and four of last year. And at least in my mind, the way I kind of look at it, it all kind of, um, you know, uh, it hit a bit of a fever pitch with Starbucks back in December when they uh, launched their um, what I think most people would would say is a pretty successful um, NFT uh, membership and loyalty project. And I can say in the last quarter, we haven't launched many startup NFT projects, a couple, and and I think a couple that are pretty interesting. But we have been talking to a lot of brands about how they can engage in their community in, um, you know, on chain um, through various kind of membership and loyalty and other kinds of initiatives. And I think that's sort of like how the brands are looking at it. And I think from like the technology standpoint, we're also now working with a lot of founders who are trying to engineer and create products that allow these brands and companies to deliver an on-chain, you know, uh, program that has a bit of like a Web2 interface, you know, and, and Web2 UX, right? So I think, you know, we've kind of come a little bit full circle and have decided, I think, okay, we know that we're going to get there, but maybe we got to get there a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more in a little bit more measured of a way, right? And sort of um, let the sort of mainstream um, come as they are. Right. And, uh, and so that's, you know, that's what I think is sort of going on right you now. Know, you, you hit on a really good point there that I don't think is really being talked about right now. Um, you know, when we think about the web three space today, you know, it's April of 2023, a lot from a retail perspective, we are in a crypto winter, right? We are, we are in a, a pretty rough bear market. Although, um, you know, we just had some nice price inflection points here with Ethereum and Bitcoin, but, um, you know, a lot of retail, you know, the hype, the frenzy, especially around NFTs for the past two years, is not where it was in its peak, you know, I would say right after post-COVID and, and you know, maybe those six months post-COVID. But we had a lot of innovators attempt with projects and really push the boundaries and the envelopes of what these Web3 capabilities could bring potentially to market, right? Um, and I think to your point, you need those failures, so to speak, to set. I think you, you this point will resonate you, especially from a legalese perspective. You need someone to set establish precedents, right, so that you know how to navigate and kind of chart moving forward. And I think that's what we saw. You know, last year, you know, I think a handful of major brands were pretty successful with their Web three initiatives. You know, Nike generated 186 million dollars in revenue in 2022 alone. That's pretty successful, right? From an it's the probably to date that's probably the most successful enterprise Web three NFT project. 
$186 million yeah. is a blue ocean strategy is the net new revenue stream that they just tapped, right, with existing customers. Interesting, though, that you are seeing a lot of major brands double down in this space. And that's what we're seeing from an advisory perspective as well. Last year, you had a lot of brands kind of seeing who in their industries were going to be the first ones to kind of like plant a flagpole, so to speak, and, you know, say, hey, we are going to explore Web3. This is our strategy. We'll throw it at the proverbial wall, see if it sticks. If it doesn't, you know, we tried, right? And maybe we can write it off. But this year, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of major brands start to really establish and look at the underlying technology and understand, you know, where, do blo- where does blockchain potentially amplify my business? Where does NFTs potentially empower my customer acquisition strategies? Where does my metaverse potentially promote, you know, better customer engagement, blah, 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 right? And I think a big thing that came out last year around trademarks and IP, especially those discussions started to bubble up here, especially on the secondary market with NFTs, who is the rightful owner, royalty rights, all that good stuff. One thing that uh, I was speaking with a, a Fortune 2000 a couple of weeks ago, and uh, a big thing that happened last year, especially with a lot of brands that were deploying NFT projects via these native, you know, NFT platforms, they just, you know, threw digital assets up there, deployed them, went on chain. They wanted to see what happened, but then they realized they actually didn't own the IP of what they were deploying because they were deploying it via another platform, and so they absolved themselves of a lot of those rights. And so now, what we're seeing, uh, I believe, in Q1 of this year, was one of some of the most uh, highest volume of trademarks filings for NFTs and digital asset IP, I think you're starting to see a lot of enterprises start to be a lot more strategic and thinking about, hey, if we want to explore Web3, we have to be ensure that legally we own what we're going to deploy. And uh, you know, from a, a revenue perspective and from a loyalty perspective and from a, a rights perspective, um, you know, when can we continue to use this stuff as we start to expand? Are you seeing a lot of that from your clients in terms of um, as they start to, to be a little bit more thoughtful in terms of their digital strategies, especially around NFTs, metaverse, e- even AI, so to speak, um, how they're actually thinking of it from a legal perspective first before they actually dive, you know, both feet into the proverbial water, so to speak? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So um, this is a great time to be an IP lawyer. It is. It's it's very interesting. <laughs> it's very exciting. And it, it's changing very quickly. Um, and and you know, um, it, it just reminds me of some of my early days of practice when we were dealing with a lot of the fallout from Napster and LimeWire and stuff like that. Um, I thought you know so, some of the stuff we're seeing now is really really otherworldly and so things you'd never thought you would really see in your life, right? But so to answer your question, I would say this: the thing about IP, when it comes to things like NFTs on chain, right? Um, people were flummoxed by this. They were, I mean, people were like, what do we do? You know, what, what does this all mean? How do we retain rights, right? I have a very specific point of view on that bucket of IP. And there's another one we'll talk about. So there's really two things I want to talk about. So the first is really, um, I, you know, this NFT IP that is minted and then distributed on chain, right? For me, I found that IP in this area was very logical because it is, 
handled in much the same way that contemporary art has been handled or visual art generally has been handled, right? So I am somebody who is of the view that our Copyright Act is and our trademark laws are perfectly fine as is to address things like minting an NFT uh, and then selling them on chain and then people reselling them and so on and so forth, right? I mean, that to me, that is no different than a, a Basquiat or a Warhol uh, being, you know, painted and sold uh, at Sotheby's or in a gallery in Soho or anything like that, right? And I have yet to really hear of why uh, this is any different. Now, that said, most people who were playing in this space are not coming from the contemporary art world. So they may see some of this stuff and be like, uh-oh, before I put this stuff on online or, oh my gosh, somebody can right click save and all this kind of stuff. Well, yeah, you can also, you know, stroll through a museum and buy a poster of all the works you just saw in the gift shop, right? It doesn't mean you own the intellectual property uh, of that painting, right? So I think there's a lot of red herrings in this area. Um, but but I think when it comes to intellectual property, if a creator is mint making an NFT, it doesn't matter which chain they're minting on and which, who's buying it and who's selling it. Like, unless they willfully and knowingly in the terms of use, like assign that IP to whoever's buying it, right? They own it. Now, Bored Ape was interesting and everything that sort of followed Bored Ape was interesting from an IP standpoint because Bored Ape, you know, Nuga Labs decided we're going to let the people who bought the, 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 the apes, we're going to let them commercialize the IP, right? Now that is interesting, but that doesn't change the law in any way, right? We've had the freedom to contract and enter into licensing agreements, you know, as long as this country has been around, right? Um, so, so I think that you know um, it's a super interesting area, and there we could talk about you know IP on the chain on the blockchain all day. But I think what it's important to know and why creators should feel some level of comfort is that like you're an artist or you're you're a creator, right? And unless you are deciding in writing to give that IP to somebody, you own it. Right. And, and that's how sort of Congress decided to craft the Copyright Act, I think, appropriately. And that's sort of how it, it applies today. However, Shiva, you ask a very good question because number two is a circus right now in IP, which is artificial intelligence. Right. And so, um, you know, uh, you see artists and creators and brands and everybody using tools like Midjourney, Synthesia, Dolly. Right. These are amazing, amazing tools. I mean, they are. If you, if any, you, know, you mess around with it yourself, you know, I do it all you know, on the weekends. I'll even sit around with my kids sometimes and just see what we can make on Midjourney, you know, and stuff like that. It's cool, right? But what is very interesting there, and I don't have an answer for it, is what is going to happen to copyright, right? Because I think many of us, and I was proven wrong for one, figured that, okay, when somebody like a Chris Castanova, who is an AI artist and scientist, who um, is sort of one of the you know, few sort of litigants who is kind of leading the charge on the creator side to try to get some clarity from the U.S. Copyright Office. Um, she filed a, um, a, a an application for essentially a comic book that she, um, you know, made. And the, as many comic books have, there was a, uh, there were images and then there was text, right? And after, you know, bore you the whole back and forth between her and her attorneys in the Copyright Office, but the long and short of it is, okay, the Copyright Office is willing to give some protection for the text 
that was created by an AI tool that that tells the story of her uh, of uh, it's called Zarya of the Dawn of her uh, comic book. But they first granted and then reversed themselves and said, we're not going to grant you protection over those images of the comic book characters that are in Zarya of the Dawn, because you have seemed to have disclosed to us that this was made by uh, an AI tool. It was made by artificial intelligence. It was made by a machine. And since our Copyright Act and our federal statutes generally are passed by Congress to govern the conduct of human beings, right? We can't now start giving protection to things that are made by non-human beings, right? Uh, And that sort of goes to what's known as like the human authorship requirement uh, under the Copyright Act, right? So um, this is a a fascinating conundrum and one that uh, has not been resolved. I still personally believe that um, here... This is where, I don't think on the blockchain issue, but here in IP, I do think we are going to need some guidance from the copyright, uh, well, probably from Congress eventually, or there either is going to have to be an amendment of the Copyright Act that specifically addresses what you do with AI works, or we are going to have what so often happens, and it's starting to kind of go in this direction, although, you know, don't know where it's going to end up next two years or so, but I think you're going to get some more of these agency actions, right? People like Castanova and others who are going to be fighting with the copyright office and saying, what are you talking about? I can't get protection for this stuff, right? We've got, I've got two pretty well-known clients right now who are going through this battle right now with the copyright office. And so we'll see what happens, but ultimately it's going to probably take some of these creators to file lawsuits in federal court saying, Hey, I need a declaration that I own this, this, this work, right? And it's going to bubble up. And as so often happens, you'll probably end up going through the appellate courts for a couple of years. And at some point, there will probably be what, what is called a circuit split, right? Which is you've got 11 courts of appeals in the United States. Some of them will say it's a machine, no protection. And some of them might say, all right, this is just innovative and cool we're going to grant you protection, wow. right? Yeah. And when you have those kinds of circuit splits, that's when the U.S. Supreme Court will, will will oftentimes jump in and sort of, you know, give the sort of final word on it. But at some point in this thing, right, that we're talking about the judicial branch, at some point the legislature might just jump in and say, okay, you know what, people are spending a lot of time and a lot of money uh, and a lot of resources, you know, on, on, on the federal level to try to figure this out. Maybe we should just, like, pass a law that 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 clarifies this, right? So, you know, that's oftentimes how new technology is treated and I'm kind of starting to see it going in that direction. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and to your last point, you know, we we always wait for the law, but the law is always, you know, the last to catch up, right? It can never keep pace with technology. <laughs> waiting for the law is like waiting for right, the law, right. I'll I tell mean, you that. <laughs> hey, we're still waiting about, you know, from the SEC, what a security means in the world of crypto, right? <laughs> But I mean, uh, I'm just soaking up everything you just said. And, and I, I, you know, I think for a lot of our listeners, especially a lot of, uh, you know, traditional executives that haven't, you know, uh, dove into this, but are probably posturing, you know, from a, especially from an enterprise or from a brand perspective, um, I'm going to run through a quick exercise with you here. We always do this in consulting. You probably do this, you know, within your law firms. Um, You know, if I'm a, if I'm a major brand, and let's say I had the directive to my CMO and my marketing team that, hey, uh, 
I need to spin up some quick digital assets really quickly. We need to push them out there. You know, they're going to be used for some sort of marketing channel, what have you. And my team, you know, unbeknownst to me, uses Midjourney or Dolly and generates and you know generates this amazing campaign. And they're just beautiful images. I mean, I think we've been seeing them all over LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram. You know, some of these modern, you know, uh, human civilizations that have been modernized, and you know, people are using them as part of their marketing campaigns, but. Those are there's to, and to your point, you know the, the the that verbiage human authorship that has not been authored by a human that has been authored by by an AI. And now, if we take that one step further, we have people creating entire websites, creating entire IP within ChatGPT. And if you go on WeFunder right now, you can go and find startups of people that have built you know really quick you know digital IP of really quick you know websites that ChatGPT has completely authored the code and now they are selling that you know as you know an acquisition or actual you know a business to be acquired and you know as we know in M&A IP validation and IP ownership and defensibility is a huge topic so how does that start to, I mean, I guess we don't have any uh, uh, legal guidance just yet because there is no legal statute that has been, um, you know, uh, instantiated here. But, you know, if I'm going to go and acquire, you know, a company that has a really quick capability and it's been completely built by AI, what is my risk of actually owning that IP because that concept of human authorship is not there? Yeah. Fantastic question. And I love that you brought in the, the M&A angle too, because that is really where, you know, the rubber meets the road when it comes to some of this stuff around like diligence and, and things like that. Right. Like, so I ha- I'm having this exact conversation, Shiva, with a number of brands and, and companies that we all know. Right. So this is exactly the question that's getting asked in those boardrooms, in the general counsel's office, in the C-suite. Right. And in, the, in these creative meetings. And um, so here's what I'd say. I'm telling clients, listen, if you want to make stuff like for, for, from an HR standpoint, internally for your employees, for culture, for, you know, your intranet and like your you know, stuff internally, go for it. Knock yourself out of mid journey, you know. Dolly, all these tools, right? I think when it comes to though your actual question, which was, well, what if I want to make creative assets to like share with the world, right? Maybe put in a television commercial, maybe put on my YouTube channel, maybe you know act as like a um, you know a new sort of brand, right, or a new look and feel for the brand or whatever. I, I, I'm almost shocked to have to tell you, like, there's not protection for that, <laughs> right? So if you are going to, um, you know. Uh, redesign the golden arches or the Nike swoosh and rebrand and use some, you know, cause there are some big brands that are like, wow, the possibilities here are quite like extensive. So maybe we can do a rebrand with mid journey. This is really cool, right? Well, yeah, it is really cool, but guess what? Most of your, you know, assets that you're going to be creating are not going to necessarily be, um, able to be sort of, you know, protected from a copyright standpoint, right? Now, if you create a new logo or something like that, like from a trademark standpoint, that might be okay, right? But but if you're creating all these images, right, you want to make, um, you know, just to, to, to share, yeah, for, like you said, a landing page for your website, right? Well, if you make that beautiful image as a landing page for your website, guess what? Your competitor can use it tomorrow, 
right? <laughs> so like, you know, and that's, that's kind of terrifying and that's not at all what you learn, right? When you're talking about like creative assets and things like that, right? What makes a creative asset sometimes so special and unique is that it is special and unique and nobody else can use it, right? So that is, that is exactly the, the question that's going on right now. And so um, people are dealing with it in many different ways, right? I mean, um, you know, I have, this is like a total extreme you'll get what I'm trying to say by giving this example, but I have one uh, very close friend, artist, a very well-known artist uh, globally who is making AI works that he prints out and then he paints them. <laughs> it's like, okay, well then you got protection, right? You're, you can protect the painting, right? So, uh, you know, so the, the, there's that, right? Or, or uh, there are folks who create these works on mid journey, but then they just use them as a reference point And then they go into like whatever, tools they typically use digitally, right? Or they might use like their, their hand to make certain, you know, aspects of it. If, you know, get their creative team do things a little bit more traditionally, right. To try to get the, the protection. But um, yeah, the long and short of it is to your point, if you make this beautiful civilization, you know, montage on mid journey that you think would just be a very impactful landing page for your website or your e-commerce store or something like that, it might still serve the function and look cool. And by the way, it's not illegal, right? It, it, it's completely legal to do it. The concern is if you don't own it, um, who else is going to you know, be able to use it? And that point, the who else is going to be able to use it is exactly why a buyer in diligence is going to say, well, what are we really buying here if none of this stuff is like exclusive and unique to, to the seller, right? And so um, I, I haven't, it's a great question. I, I mean, we're in diligence in a few deals right now and I don't know that any of them are going to have this exact AI component to it, but I guarantee you, by the end of the year, we'll have we'll have had to deal with this issue in the M and A context, which I think is is a pretty interesting one. So, Vivek, when you when you think about business process patents that have been given for kind of rules based automation, which some would argue. AI is a little bit like, you know, it, yes, it's a large language model, but you, you know, the, if this, then that, the old, the old rule base yeah. that is still used. So when do you, when do you cross the, well, we can no longer trademark it because we have trademarked things that have used rules based, whether it's a business process or whether I'm on um, Canva or Wix and they've got logo generators. They ask me 10 questions, which is like an if this, then that, and that generates a logo. So, we're, I, you know, right. lots of thorny issues. Yes, no, those are great points, too. And I think, like, you know, people will also say, well, gosh, what about, what about sampling of music, which is, like, basically – been the majority of the music, the record industry for the last 30 years. Like how, how, how is that? You know, when I go get a, grab a sample off of any of these tools and incorporate it and I rap over it, like I could have a huge worldwide hit and own all the IP in it. How is that possible? Right. And, uh, I, these are all the arguments that yeah. I think people make. Um, I think that the thing that I personally, I don't know this, but I do think Sue, the, the thing that I think is really bothering the copyright office, I assume is that, it's 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 not as if thenny as the things that are out there. It is. I understand completely what you're saying, and I think that's a very smart uh, 
that would be a very smart argument to make to the copyright office, right? These are exactly the things <laughs> we should be arguing. I think what's troubling them is that you put in a prompt and you literally have no clue what's coming out, right? And, and uh, you know, you could say the same for some of these generators, I suppose. And there are a lot of analogies. Um, but I think ultimately they're saying, you know, but, but to your point, I will say this, and I should st stand a little corrected, and I'm glad that you brought this up. In the last decision, the last Castanova decision, which is in March, that kind of stripped her or stripped them of, of, the, um, of the copyright that they had initially granted, the Copyright Office did say, and, and I should say this, and that's why I think you have, that's a really acute comment you made. The, the Copyright Office did say specifically that, listen, we're not making a general rule here. We're not. We're not going to make a general rule that all AI works are not protected. All we're saying is Castanova told us that this one is made by a machine and that all he, you know, all they did was put in some prompts and, you know, they, they disclosed the prompt and, you know, here's the, here's the result, right? Um, they did say, however, in the future, right, perhaps the prompt itself could be something so original and authored by a human, obviously, mm -hmm. right, that, right? That you can get protection. And I, when I hear that, I think, Sue, that, okay, well, then maybe prompt engineering, which has quickly become a, you know, a professional calling, right? Um, prompt, like those prompt engineers and, and the prompts they create might be protected a lot like source code, right? Which if you just go back, wow. if you go back 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, source code is actually protected in the same way that like poetry is protected. It's just a literary work. Wow. Right. So we might get go full circle here where like this super futuristic AI thing is just like a poem. Right. It's like a, it's like a literary work. It's words on a page. Right. And I think what what some folks are arguing is like, listen, these words on a page. I mean, if you look, you guys are you know probably have seen this a million times on LinkedIn and elsewhere. You see when all these folks are sharing uh, the prompts that they're that they're using to create certain images. And it is far afield from the prompts that were being used 90 days yeah. ago, 120 yeah. days ago. Yeah. You know, people are really and in there, I mean, the prompts that my kids and I use are like very basic, you know, and then all of a sudden you see these people who are like really in there. And so I think there's, you're onto something for sure, because I do think at some point, uh, somebody, the copyright office is going to look at this and be like, Hey, listen, like no, like the reason this work is so this is because this person put all this over here and that takes some creativity. And that certainly takes human authorship. Right. So I think this conundrum will, it's going right down the, the road that I think we all are. We're all watching it go down the road, knowing it's going down this road, but we just don't know like what the outcome is well, going to be. And yeah. there's probably another layer there that, you know, I can't imagine copyright or, you know, anyone that doesn't understand technology really has an understanding to be able to apply something like this. But, you know, when you think of prompt engineering and prompts, you know, let's say prompt is a unique asset, right? That is a, you created right. the prompt. So I don't know if there's an argument there that human authorship of the prompt is a safeguardable asset. But when you think about AI, large language models, let's use GPT again, ChatGPT, it's essentially, I mean, this is a very bad analogy, but you know, in essence, think of a centralized database that a m multiple people are accessing, right? Now you have a large language model that you know millions of people are accessing from a web front end. If you, if I put in a prompt, and let's say my prompt is a unique IP, uh, and let's say it's been registered, all that stuff, where we're five years in the future, and Sue puts in a prompt that is very similar but not 
to the to the exact degree and it doesn't indicate any sort of infringement there is nothing preventing us from you know the llm the 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 large language model actually using its own internal processes and logic and all that good stuff spitting out an output that is very similar in nature so now I have my unique IP prompt and Sue has her general prompt and the output of the LLM, you know, is very similar in nature. And now there might be some argument to say that, hey, Sue, you infringed on my um, on, on my IP, my trademark, because you generated this. And my prompt, I can prove, can also generate this. That That's an interesting leg uh, of potential illegal landscape, you know, maybe in the future that I, I don't even know if people are considering right now. Yeah, so listen, think about it. Think about it this way. So today, so your listeners should know this. Today, don't even, like, I, I'm almost encouraging clients, people who are just into this stuff, like, to think of this in the same way that I was looking at, like, the blockchain stuff a few years ago. Don't think about it like nothing's changed in a way, in one way, which is this. When you're thinking about, am I breaking the law? Am I infringing on an art, you know, on a work that's out there, right? The sole inquiry is, does A, is A substantially similar to B? And we're only talking about outputs, Shiva, okay? Only outputs, right? So today, right, if you and Sue put in the exact same prompt, on mid-journey, but for some reason it comes out with two separate things that are completely different from each other, totally fine today, right? In the future, though, what you're saying, and I think what you're saying is piggybacking on what I had previously said, right? I think what's an interesting issue slash potential problem could be what if you and Sue, um, so, so let's say you do have the protection over a prompt, okay? And let's say Sue puts in the exact same prompt, but her output creates something completely different because you're using a different software tool or something, right? And and you then sue her for infringement based on your prompt. Well, but hold on. Like, what we created was completely different, right? So th- th- that is why this stuff, I think, has to be reconciled because, you know, you got to remember the whole point of the Copyright Act and the whole point of our intellectual property laws, which I think a lot of people lose sight of sometimes, the whole point of IP is to actually inspire innovation, yeah. right? It's not meant to like, hey, I can stop you, I can stop you, I can sp- stop you. What it's what it's supposed to do, and what the framers, you know, thought of when they when they you know drafted the the first sort of version of these things is, well, if we give our people these very robust rights, that will actually incentivize them to make more stuff, right? And so that is sort of the beginnings of this like very rich, uh, you know, rich tradition of, of, you know, creation that we've had in the U.S. for, you know, really hundreds of yeah. years now. Right. Of yeah. innovation. So, uh, you know, and others might argue, well, that actually just, you know, all it does is like, well, no, I think, you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of a lot written about this. And I do think that that probably is um Still true today. I do think that by granting people, you know, rights and intellectual property, we are probably um, encouraging them to make more and to push the boundaries and make something even a little bit more creative, a little bit more innovative, solve some more problems. Because if you solve the problem, we're going to give you some upside that, you know, uh, we're, we're going to reward you for, you know, helping create these, pro- you know, this, solving these problems for, for our communities, right? So I think, you know, there's a whole, I think that like the, from an intellectual property standpoint, this AI conundrum 
must be solved from a copyright standpoint, at least um, sooner rather than later, because as you said, like the brands want to use it. They already kind of are using it. They're just not quite sure how to like use it in the way they want to engage the public and, and the consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to our kind of earlier conversation with NFT and creatives and stuff, and I kind of want to take that lens again from a brand, you know, a major company that's looking to get into this space. Um, based off of kind of how you've seen uh, the market, and, and when I say market, I mean like the trademark market, I guess you could say, or the industry. Uh, it seems that yeah. now a lot of these brands, uh, if they have a desire or they have identified that they will do something with a digital asset, digital IP, their initial reaction is to go and file for a trademark. Would, would you say that that's, uh, that that's kind of like the overwhelming kind of uh, uh, standard right now or precedent? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we, we saw... So, so trademarks are granted to parties who, are, who didn't just come up with the trademark, but who are using the trademark in commerce, right? That's like the important uh, thing, right? So if I just came up with the phrase, just do it, and then like, I just tweeted it out, just do it. And then all of a sudden, people made it into like, they started putting it on their, you know, soccer shorts, and then on their sneakers, and then like on their hats. I can't really do anything about it. Because when I tweeted, just do it, like, it was not in connection with any good or service, right? So, you know, so, so, you know, the, we, we grant it based on, on use, right? So if you are using um, the, a trademark, so to speak, right, to create a digital asset, right, a digital asset is different from creating a apparel or creating uh, a, a, an automobile or creating an airplane, right, which are all different classes in which you would register the trademark. So really what, the way to think of it is, um, that, that there is now this new um, uh, kind of asset that is like a digital asset. And so if you're using your trademark, right, if you're, you know, there's literally millions of trademarks, right, if you're using Nike or, you know, McDonald's or Y Whales, right, uh, you know, in connection with the minting of an NFT, the idea is, well, you should then now expand your existing portfolio to include this new class of goods and services because this is a sort of a new application of your already existing trademark. So that's why it's a, um, again, it, let's think of it super traditionally, right? Like this is the same as when, um, you know, um, let's say Nike decided to uh, get into making um, sports equipment rather than sporting apparel. Right, that would have required them to to expand their uh, trademarks into one additional new category. It's no longer just apparel. We're now doing equipment. Right? Maybe later they got into like making. I'm sure they've done like notebooks and things, and the you know, and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. And now they're they're probably registered in in dozens uh, of classes um, domestically and hundreds worldwide. Right? So that's like a way to think of it. Now, now, what about so if I'm Oh, go, go on, Sue. Well, well, go ahead. And then I'd like at some point for Vivek to kind of give us his, um, where does he think the, that the legislation will end up around our NFTs, securities? Why is digital art a security when, you know, 
physical art isn't, you know, if you could talk a little bit about where you, um, where you see regulation yeah. going. Yeah. This is a very hot button issue. I get it. And, and I know that like people are very passionate about it. Um, I, I, I think that when we are talking about um, collectibles, I guess would be the word that people use to describe this stuff. I look at those things like a board ape or a crypto punk or a doodles, you know, like I, I, I look at those no different than a piece of artwork. And I think we could probably talk Sue all day about whether when I go to, you know, an art gallery and I pay $2,000 for a painting from a hot new artist who just graduated from Yale MFA program, like, am I doing that with the expectation that that's going to increase in value and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, the SEC has traded, just treated that transaction and every transaction like it, which are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of transactions a year, right? Um, treating that as not uh, a purchase or a sale of securities, right? And so, you know, I tend to think then that just because the artwork is being sold on a blockchain or because the artwork is not you know, paint on a canvas or, or a sculpture that it's a, you know, it, it's source code and, and, and digital art, right? I don't think that from a security standpoint, it should be treated any differently. Um, you know, because there are plenty of people who, you know, collect artwork because it, it just, you know, it moves them deeply and it means a lot to them. Mm -hmm. And um, they like living with it and they like interacting with it. They like engaging with it. Um, it has the power to transform, right? And, and a lot of people, you know, believe that. Uh, and so, you know, so that's how I feel about, about that. Um, I think that there are other kinds of NFTs that certainly, you know, that, that maybe give you, um, you know, uh, uh, access to a certain revenue stream or a certain, um, you know, maybe you get a royalty or a, uh, some kind of, you know, fee or you get paid something for if something happens in the future, right? And that delivers an upside and it's not really a collectible. It's just a, a token as we're calling them, right? Like it's just a token that, you know, might have some future value. I do think that there are circumstances that are out there in which those have been or are and should probably be regulated by the SEC um, for the for the primary purpose of just protecting you know people like you and my I who might get involved with some kind of transaction or you know and so um, so I, I hope does that answer your question I mean I think I yeah. think that that's yeah. how it will be treated and and it should be I do think that we do need clearer guidance I mean I know the SEC has been um, you know I, I've had moments where I've felt very good about the way that they're um, really digging in and trying to learn about this space but then you know I'll just see some you know real heavy handed indictment come down that like, doesn't seem to me like they're actually like talking with the community to figure out what might be a workable rule. And so, you know, I, I would, you know, invite the SEC to talk with, with us more and more about um, learning about what's happening in the community, because I think everybody wants um, a, a very clear articulation of the rule and, you know, and, and that might not have been the case a couple of years ago. I'll, I'll give I'll give them that and I'll concede that. But right now, I think everybody just wants clarity. And I think whatever mm -hmm. the clarity is and the guidance is, I think people will adhere to it. Um, I just think that when you the longer you go um, in this sort of Howie test, you know, 
crypto, blockchain, NFT gray area, it's um, it's just causing more consternation as you're probably seeing. Now, now, does does intent matter at all? Like, let's say you know I'm a creator and you know. I just decided out of the goodness of my heart, I wanted to drop, you know, a 200 piece art collection because I just love art so much. And I dropped it and and I had no intent and I dropped it for free, but on the secondary market, it just took off. Right. And the acquirers of that asset, you know, essentially turned it into a security. They bought it, you know, they, 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 they held it. They waited for it to appreciate. They sold it for some, you know, uh, net value appreciation. There's some profits there, but myself, as the original creator, I never had any intent to, you know, make any revenue off of this. Now, would I potentially be, you know, put, looked at for a slap on the wrist? Because essentially, that should have been, as the creator, that should have been registered as a security? Or, like, how, how do I, like, where does the delineation become where the community takes my asset and runs with it versus I myself as the creator? I think you have a lot of independents and creatives that, you know, Maybe mm-hmm. they just want, you know, they, they they sold it for an X price and that's all they wanted, but then the market just took off and ran with their collection. Does does that play a role here at at any point? It's a good question. So let me so here if you remember, so the Howey test requires, right, that that there's four things, right, in order to figure out if a transaction is a security, right? If there's an investment of money, expectation of profits, um, you know, if that investment is in a common enterprise and the profit comes from the efforts of a promoter or a third party, right? And so I think in this situation, I mean, you know, when you're making art, right? I mean, and that artist sort of sells the 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 first work i mean if you talk to artists like you know they're they're expecting to make you know money from the work and obviously they're making a living from it right but the person buying it like i mean that's where i think the the theory kind of you know fumbles a little bit right because it's like of course, if a buyer is, you know, many buyers, maybe I would even say, I wouldn't even argue with the fact that I'd say the majority of buyers might even be like, oh yeah, hot new artist, like maybe this will be worth a lot one day type thing, right? But I think if you really talk to collectors, like they also know that like 99.5% of this is either going to be worth what it's worth when you bought it or less in the future, you know? So I don't know that there's like a real expectation of profits with that in the same way that there might be like when you were playing in the stock market or, you know, and are doing it, buying and selling a company or, you know, things like that. Um, so, but then your question about, you know, can a third party run with it and make it sort of a, a, um, uh, a turn it into a security, so to speak. Um, I, I guess maybe possibly depending on what they do. I mean, I guess if this third party then takes that asset and, um, I don't know, tries to like, promote it and advance, which I, which happens in the art world too, right? I mean, people be like, oh yeah, now I've got this great body of work. I'm going to have a whole, my gallery show is going to be all this show of this one artist who is reaching new heights and this, you, you better buy now because in five years it's going to be unattainable and going to be selling at auction for millions of dollars and like all this stuff. It happens, right? Those stories are told and, and those transactions happen. Um, you know, it, they just are not regulated in the same way. I think the securities are in the art. Like, why aren't why is not why isn't a, a, a you know million dollar painting regulated in the same way that uh, you know um, other securities are related or regulated? I think that is 
a conversation has been happening for for decades, even before any of this web 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 one, web two, or web three uh, ever happened. You know, and I don't know. Um, you know, I'm sure there uh, yeah, it, it, there are probably securities lawyers who are still studying this 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 issue that could give you probably a better answer. But my sense is that you know those NFTs that are really treated as collectibles and people are collecting them as collectibles, right? I don't think they're going to be regulated. Vivek, you you mentioned briefly a little bit earlier um, royalties and things, and and it is now possible to fractionalize um, music and buy royalties on different platforms. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That's just such an an innovative application of Web3. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, um, you know, we've had the, the pleasure of working uh, for for a long time, almost really from the beginning with Royal.io, uh, which is like, as you note, I think correctly, yeah. a really innovative uh, startup. You know, um, th- those guys, Blau and the other founders, I think, and the team really um, have, I think, like taken something that seemed almost like a non-disruptable, right? And really figured out a way to um, engage the audiences in like mm-hmm. a really meaningful way, you know? And what what I think is, um, is so interesting about, well, there's so many interesting things about this specific space and Royal.io yeah, in general, but what's interesting there is, you know, it's not even, it just shows, right, that like not everything can be like, you know, logically scaled and hacked and funded. And like, you know, we can't really look at everything as like an economic mathematical model to be solved. There still is like these very soft human, like emotional components to engaging with the world. Right. And I think with Royal.io, people are always surprised when they see, yeah, fans are not making millions of dollars off of like, a fractional owning a fraction of like a Nas track or a chain smokers right. track. Right. Right. But they are feeling some very, very deep connection. And I'm just going to be honest. And I, if the guys from Royal hear this, like, you know, hopefully they don't mind. But I, when I, when they first came to us, you know, I, I remember I'm a huge music fan and I have been my whole, my whole life. I played music my whole life. I'm always listening to music. And I was very into it when they, when, when I got introduced, we got introduced to them and I gotta say, I, I wasn't quite sure about the about it, right? I was like, oh, you know, is this really gonna, you know, how's this gonna work? And I was proven completely wrong. And it's because I think I didn't even listen to my my own self, right, with my own sort of, uh, you know, soul when it comes to like the importance of connecting with music, right? And these fans, just by engaging in that, you know, transaction or whatever it brings them closer. It brings them in. And then with all the non sort of economic benefits you can get from participating in this Royal, you know, experiment, so to speak, right. Is, is really cool. Right. And, and I think that they have taken the first big step to what, you know, many others have have tried and are still trying. And I think very sort of admirably like Spotify and SoundCloud and the others to try to really bring, how do we engage our fans in this digital world now with yes. music. Yeah. Right? And I think that they have done an outstanding job. There's another um, startup um, that we're working with that I love called Sona uh, Stream. And they're also um, doing really interesting things with allowing fans to, um, you know, essentially uh, invest in a track, right? And mm-hmm. and, and get, they've gamified it um, to allow, you know, participants to um, essentially, you know, earn, you know, 
cryptocurrency, rewards, benefits, you know, depending mm-hmm. on um, the performance of that track, right? It, it just out there in the world. So, you know, it's, 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 it, there, there's a, I think, uh, I'm glad you asked me that because I think, you know, music has been an area um, and long before um, even uh, streaming. I mean, it's just been an area that has been um, really, uh, uh, used by everybody but really made and managed by a few you know mm-hmm. so so and, and profited uh, it's cool to see. by a few yeah. yeah yeah profited by a few so it's really great to see um uh, a lot of these technologies moving forward and i don't personally i don't think that it's um uh surprising that we are at the same time at, i think in part as a result of this seeing um, so many more women and uh, musicians of color sort of ruling the charts and the airwaves and like getting the attention. And I think that that's, I think that's awesome. Man, this has been pretty refreshing. Most of the lawyers that I have to engage with for, you know, our clients, I end up spending a lot of time educating about the technology that we are actually advising on, right? Like tokenization and digital assets and what does that mean and how could that apply to securities? So it's really refreshing to hear, you know, from a lawyer that is actually, you know, in this space and understands the applicability and understands the underlying frameworks of these technology capabilities that are coming to market here. I mean, um, so well, sure, let, me, let me say something at that one point. I just want to say something on the one point because um, I, I get that a lot and I hear that a lot, right? And there, there was there's probably at least one law student or lawyer, young lawyer that's listening to this. And you know, I, I really want to say this, and I feel like it's a, a bit of an obligation too to like just from a professional standpoint. Like the thing about law and what makes it so unique is that it literally touches every corner of modern life, right? So if you are just into cars or if you are into books or if you are into computers or you're into blockchain or you're into art or you're into sports, right? Or you, you know, you're into numbers or whatever you are into, there is a legal job for you. And I think that law schools, you know, with all due respect, do a horrible job of teaching that to our young lawyers. And so then what ends up happening is everybody gets out into practice. They just take the first job or the highest paying job that comes to them. And then they end up on this track and then they end up, you know, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes in a place where, you know, they're not really happy. And I think that has contributed to a lot of the sort of, you know, uh, unhappiness and and sort of the, the mental health crisis that we see in the legal industry, right? And we have for decades. So I'm glad you said that because I would just say to any young person out there who's thinking about using the law as a tool to, you know, as part of their career, find out or just ask yourself what you're passionate about, and what you love. And I guarantee you there will be a job that, that piggybacks off of that. And for me, I've always been interested in new technologies and anything related to art and music and film and these things. Right. So I just kind of like took a mishmash of everything I was passionate about and put it all together and like tried to build a company around it. Man, that's awesome. I think that's a, that's a great way to end this, this episode here. I mean, <laughs> Again, I mean, it's just really refreshing, uh, you know, and, and I think you hit the nail on the head. And I think this could be applied to almost any industry, especially when you think of your your traditional, you know, corporate, you know, white collar job. You know, there's always room to find an intersection between your passions and your hobbies and how you could turn that into your professional career or make it work into even consulting, right? 
I didn't, you know, before this, I was doing M&A and, uh, you know, traditional business yeah. strategy. And, and now here I am talking every day with DGENs and uh, with people like Sue that are really <laughs> pushing, you know, the industry and, and really thinking about how do you uh, promote industries even further and further and further with these net new capabilities. And it's just awesome to see that there is a subsect, you know, within, um, within law uh, which, you know, traditionally is the one that lags behind. We have so many of these innovators pushing through all these new capabilities. And, you know, we're yeah. all waiting for what is the regulatory compliance? What is, what do I need to adhere to to make sure that I stay, remain legal, right? Well, who do I engage with? Well, if there's no uh, established precedent, well, maybe we have to be the ones that kind of pave that path forward. Um, and I think it takes young minds, especially who are natively and much more organically in tune with these technologies because they're using it in their daily lives as a habitual nature to really think strategically about how it's applied from a legal context. Because I think what we're seeing right now, and especially you know with a lot of these recent talks in front of Congress and Senate, is the old guard, so to speak, doesn't really have an ability to understand the concepts that they need to be you know enacting the laws around, right? And it takes that younger audience, the people that you are hiring, right, the people that are being onboarded into your firm, and the people that you're talking about in law school, to really you know, hey. I love this concept of NFTs. I love this concept of digital assets. I love this concept of tokenized securities. Let's go see how we can uh, adapt, you know, current statutes to make sure that these remain compliant, so that we can then, you know, pave um, a safe path forward for everyone. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with everything you just said there, Shiva. I mean, uh, you know, I've I've always been, um, and you know, maybe it's something that I got from my father who uh, turns 80 in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, he, he always, uh, we, when we were younger, he's an engineer and he's always, he's been very entrepreneurial, but there's been stints where he's had like jobs and like engineering firms. And he, he's always hanging out with the, the kids who just graduated from engineering school. You know, even when he's in his 60s, his 70s, like that's who he's hanging out with. And I've always also surrounded myself by a lot of young people because I feel very energized by them. I teach, you know, a couple courses every year at the University of Miami Law School, which is, you know, I, I love doing in part because it puts me front and center among, you know, the youth, the next generation. And I learn a lot from my children who are only 12 and six. But when I see them on Roblox or playing Minecraft or whatever they're doing, like I'm interested and I can't really explain it. But I do think that that sort of openness and approach would do a lot of folks in Congress really well because, um, <laughs> you know, I know even at 44, I don't, I don't have the capacity to know everything anymore. And so if I want to understand something on Discord or what's happening on chain, you know, I oftentimes do turn to a few people at my firm who are like right in it eight nights a week, like, you know, <laughs> really engaging. And so I think like... That's really, you know, a great, you know, way to kind of, you know, uh, learn these things. And I, the other thing is, you know, when, when all, a lot of us who are like adults or whatever, or older and, you know, been, been doing things for decades now, like the younger people, they want to engage with you in this way. Like they want to share their experience with you. What I have found, at least in the legal industry, is that 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 is just like it's just not something that the older guard necessarily is like seeking out. Yeah. I think that's a really missed opportunity. Yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. Yep. Well, another another great episode, and you know, I I, I think we made Thank this you. less dry than what people would think about, you know, trademark and law and Web three, and uh, this was pretty fun dialogue. So thank you, Vivek, for for giving us some time. Um, it's not every day that you get a free one hour with a lawyer here, so uh, hopefully we don't get billed for this. But uh, I will always take an hour of a lawyer's time to talk about things like this. And thank you again, Sue, for being a tremendous co-host. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, thank you, Y Whales, for listening, and you all take care. Y Whales was founded in 2021 by Jay Steinbeck, a passionate entrepreneur and business owner, with the purpose of bringing YPO and YNG members together in the cryptoverse. Y Whales is a collaborative and confidential community centered around cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology, an exclusive crypto hub of more than 600 members. To be notified when we release new content, please subscribe to our show in your preferred listening app. For more information, visit www.ywhales.com. YWhales is not affiliated with YPO, but at this time only allow for YPO, YPO Gold, and YNG members due to privacy and confidentiality. Support and production for today's episode was done by TruthWork Media. Nothing in the podcast constitutes professional and or financial advice, nor does any information on the podcast constitute a comprehensive or complete statement of the matters discussed or the law relating thereto.